This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. If you would uh, grab your, your Bibles or your devices, however you access uh, the Word of God and uh, open them or click on to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and uh, we'll be in several different scriptures there and 2 Samuel as well, so just kind of be ready to turn as we go through our study. I think that perhaps the, the greatest measure of our character is how we respond when it dawns on us that we're the most influential or the most looked up to person in the room. And if you say, well, Joe, that knocks me out. You know, I'm never the most influential person in the room. Uh, you need to think again because you are. All of us, every one of us at, at some level, we have authority, we have influence. You're a father, you're, you're a mother, a husband, a wife, a grandma, grandpa, maybe a manager, owner, captain of a team, um, babysitter, the big brother, big sister, or have you ever thought about this? We're all the most powerful during those alone moments when no one is around and we have the influence over our phone, what to look at, um, what to click on. So, so all of us, at some particular moment, we carry the title of most influential. And our actions and responses in those moments I believe, is the greatest reflection of our character. Now, fasten your seatbelts. Here at this church, if you're new, just tell you that sometimes we can take 45 minutes to cover two verses. Today, we want to cover 20 chapters. (laughs) And initially, our lesson will appear to be disjointed, and you may feel that way every Sunday, but... We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 16, fast forward over 20 years to 2 Samuel chapter 5, but this helter-skelter approach is on purpose. There is a plan to this March 13th madness at the Church of God Holiness. It may not be a good plan, but I do have a plan. And seriously, I believe that if God helps me, and that's the key, always is the key, if God helps me, by the time we're ready to leave today... I just have a sense that God will have spoken to us as He spoke to my heart this week. Let's just bow our heads and pray again. Lord, we need You. We need You. We need You. And uh, God, I pray for Your presence. I pray for Your power. I pray for understanding. I pray for insight. And then, Lord, I pray for change for those of us that need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's roll. One day when David was around uh, middle school age, the prophet Samuel showed up at David's father's house. Now, David wasn't home that day. He was out shepherding sheep. But, But Samuel showed up at the doorstep and said to Jesse, who was David's father, he said, my name is Samuel. I'm a prophet. And I've come on a special mission. Now, this special mission was a secret mission. And At that time, there was no indication that Samuel told them the purpose of the mission, but 
I, I've read the entire account in the Bible. I happen to know. And so since you're my trustworthy friends, if you will not tell anyone, I'll let you know in advance the purpose of the secret mission. The purpose of Saul's secret mission, I'm sorry, Samuel's secret mission was to anoint the next king of Israel. Now, why did this mission have to be a secret? Well, because Israel already had a king, King Saul. And so if you're going to anoint the next king, and the current king is still alive and is not looking for a successor, you better keep your mission a secret. So Samuel just says, Jesse, I've come here to do a special sacrifice. And I want you to invite all of your family to it, which would then give a chance for Samuel to, to see which of Jesse's sons would get the God nod, or in other words, would be chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. So, so Jesse gathers his family. Samuel begins to scan the family one by one by one, trying to figure out which one of Jesse's sons would make a good king. Let's pick up our reading for Samuel 16, 6. When they arrived, so when the family arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, Eliab was Jesse's oldest son. And in that culture, by default, you would kind of go with the firstborn son. And Samuel was probably thinking, you know, this is too easy. Here's the firstborn son. So mission accomplished, game over, let's do the sacrifice thing. And I can get out of here and go play golf or whatever Samuel did in his spare time. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. Which, by the way, it's really difficult not to do that, isn't it? When you meet someone for the first time, what do you notice? Their appearance. That their hair, their face, their build. Sometimes you notice their tattoos, their clothes. That's what Samuel did. But God said, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, the face, the clothes, the hair. But the Lord looks at the heart. Now, let me just give a a stop here for a moment, give a practical word of warning. Ladies, ladies, don't be fooled by those of us that are super good looking. You need to look into our hearts. And the same thing, men, it's a woman's heart that makes the woman attractive long term. Because how quickly that outer beauty can disappear. How many times have we gone to a class reunion and we see someone that we thought was beautiful or handsome when they were in school, but then 20, 30 years later, it's like, Oh, my word, they didn't age well, did they? They must have had a difficult life. Or sometimes we even add that that old phrase, you know, they got hit with an ugly stick somewhere along the line. And and of course, the classic oft-repeated phrase is, beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes to the bone. And and, and you might have heard about the smart-alecky person that made a comment about that. He said, well, I'm tired about all of this nonsense about beauty only being skin deep. That's deep enough. I mean, what do you want? An adorable pancreas? (laughs) But anyway, God said, 
Eliab is not the one. Well, the story goes on, and we won't read all of this to save time, but six sons later, and you can count them, one, two, three, four, five, six sons later, God still hasn't given his approval for the next king. Well, by now Samuel is perplexed, and, and so maybe he scans them one more time, wondering if he, if he missed hearing God's voice, but finally he says to Jesse, and, and, and imagine how awkward this has to be, Jesse, with as many kids as you have, did you maybe accidentally forget to invite one? You know, those of you with uh, more than one kid, um, have you ever forgotten and left one of your kids behind? You know, we did. We, we left poor Erica, and she's been scarred ever since. We left her at church, and, uh, and, and every now, uh, you know, and, and even now, every so often, we will go to lock the church up after uh, everyone has left, sometimes Wednesday night, sometimes Sunday morning. On, on occasion, there will be this little kid looking so forlorn, and we will say, well, where's your mommy and daddy? And they will say, their lip just quivering, I think they forgot me. I can name a few of you that have done that. And sometimes I think you did that on purpose. <laughs> but anyway, verse 11, so, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And they're, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but, but he's tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So David, the youngest, most unlikely son, probably about middle school age, is sent for and he comes in from the fields and when he walks in the door, all of a sudden Samuel gets the nod from God. Verse 12, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, that's David, he is the one. So Samuel walks over to young David and, and what they did during this time, they would pour oil on their head and he gave him a blessing and, and all of the other brothers, these six other brothers are probably standing there and they're like, uh, what just happened with our little brother? David is anointed. Listen, he goes back to tending sheep. He's there for about 18 months. 18 months later, David takes some cheese and goodies to his brothers on the battlefield. And you remember that famous encounter with Goliath. And, and he kills Goliath, becomes an overnight sensation. And for the next, catch the timeline here, seven years, David is in and around the palace of King Saul playing his harp doing odd jobs. Well, obviously during this time, David becomes larger than life. Saul becomes jealous of David, and, and Saul begins to try to kill him, and David has to flee, and he becomes a fugitive from the king. And again, I'm going to keep talking about timelines. Pay attention to the timeline. For the next eight years, David is on the run. He's hiding with his band of disgruntled men all the while, all the while knowing that God had chosen him to be king. Well, while David is on the run from King Saul, the interesting thing is that on two occasions, David has an opportunity to kill King Saul. And, and if you were raised in church, as many of you were, you remember these, these accounts. On one occasion, David is hiding deep in the cave because King Saul's men are close by and would you believe that King Saul, as he's passing by that cave, he decides to go into that very cave? Why did he go in? 
Well, several translations say Saul went in the cave to relieve himself, which most of us would say, well, he went in to go to the bathroom. Another translation says he went into the cave to tend to his needs. Another one says he went in there to cover his feet, which some believe that went in there to take a break, maybe take a little nap where it's cool in the cave, and I'll let you be the scholar. You can decide what he went in there to do. But anyway, David is deep in the cave. Saul goes in to do whatever he went to do, and while he's doing whatever he went to do, actually, let me just read it for you, 1 Samuel 24, 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. Saul went in to, NIV says, relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and listen, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So obviously David's eyes have adjusted to the dark. He's been in there long enough. Saul's eyes have not adjusted to the darkness and And David's men see Saul come in, and they can't believe it, and they turn to David and and whisper, are you kidding me? Can you believe our luck? Here is Saul alone, and, and here's what they basically say, not in these words, but this is the day that the Lord hath made, let us kill Saul and be glad in it. And David starts quietly slipping up with his sword towards Saul and he gets up there and all of a sudden it's like no, no, no I can't do that that's the Lord's anointing and so he takes his sword but instead of driving it through Saul's heart while he was doing whatever he was doing he takes his sword and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. That little piece of robe, that little piece of fabric in his hand, so pricks his conscience. And in verse 5, 1 Samuel chapter 24, says, Afterward, after he had cut off this piece of robe, David was so conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe, He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men, so he said, shame on you for trying to get me to kill the Lord's anointed, and did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went his way. Saul gets a little distance away, David appears at the mouth of the cave, And he yells down, Saul! And gets Saul's attention. And in 1 Samuel 24, 9, it says, He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, that's a a way of respect, uh, uh, referring to him as respect. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe I have in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. So 
Ladies and gentlemen, that's the first convenient and even from our perspective, seemingly justifiable opportunity to take Saul out. But notice David's character and integrity. At that moment, when he was the most powerful person in the cave, when his men could have taken Saul out, he could have taken Saul out, he didn't. And even though we know that David was not perfect, and we know that David made his share of mistakes, and we know that David committed some horrible sins, yet there was something about him that always caused him to repent and come back to God. And God loved his sensitive heart and referred to him as a man after his own heart. And so here in this situation where where David had the power, David had the influence, he showed restraint, character, and integrity. Another instance that showcased his integrity took place just a few months later in 1 Samuel chapter 26. The report comes back to David that Saul and his men are in the desert of Ziph, which is a wide open area with no trees, and they've made camp for the night. David cannot resist, and he takes a group of men up over the hill to watch the camp where Saul was, and and, and King Saul was where kings always were, right in the middle, the safest place. Sun goes down, darkness settles in, and David couldn't resist. And so he turns to his good friend Abishai and says, Abishai, I have a really, really bad idea. Would you like to go in with me on a really, really bad idea? And actually, he didn't say that. But he said, Abishai, would you like to go with me on a mission? Abishai was in. Here's what happened. David and Abishai sneaked down into Saul's army at night. They they tiptoe past the first line of sleeping guards. They make their way through the slumbering army. They walk quietly into the middle of the camp past Abner, who was the king's chief bodyguard, and and, and they tiptoe right up to King Saul, who is sleeping. His spear is stuck beside him, and his water bottle or his water jug is right there as well. And Abishai was like, David, David, we missed our opportunity a few months ago in the cave. We get another chance to take Saul out. It's like God has prepared this moment for us. This is meant to be. And by the way, let me stop here and and as I do on occasion, go on a little rant and try to debunk some horrible theology called fatalism. The theology of fatalism surfaces with that little phrase that many of you say, I've heard you say it, and I've probably said it myself. Here's the phrase, I guess it was meant to be. That's the false theology of fatalism. You know, in Spanish we say, que sera, sera. What will be, will be. Many people believe that just because something happens that it's meant to be, and so therefore it must be God's will, that is fatalism. That is junk theology. Yes, obviously God at times in His sovereign will does orchestrate events where from our perspective it appears that things just fall into place, but just because something happens or just because something doesn't happen doesn't necessarily mean that it's God's will. 
You know, just because your loan goes through doesn't always mean that it was meant to be and that it was God's will for you to buy that house. Just because you fall in love with someone and and they fall in love with you doesn't necessarily mean that that relationship was meant to be. Just because you get the job doesn't always mean it was meant to be. Don't fall for fatalism, false theology. But Abishai basically says, David, it's meant to be. God has given Saul into your hands. But David says, no, no, I can't. I won't. I won't touch the Lord's anointed. Well, evidently, Abishai kind of argues with him and says, okay, David, I I know you've got all these convictions. You don't feel you should lay hands on, on the Lord's anointed, and that's okay. I don't have those same convictions. So I'll take care of him, free you from that guilt. I'll pin him to the ground, one thrust of the sword. I won't need to strike him twice because my aim will be true the first time. But, verse 9, 1 Samuel 26, David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself. Catch that, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And again, we see David as the most powerful person around. He could have taken Saul out. He could have had Abishai take him out, but he showed integrity. And he said, he's God's anointed. Let's let God unfold his will in his way, in his time. But then this kind of cracks me up. David, uh, I think, wanted to have a little bit of fun. And he says to Abishai in verse 11, Now get the spear and get that water jug that are near his head and let's go. So they grab Saul's spear. They grab his water bottle. They quietly slip out of camp, go up on a hillside, and wait for the sun to rise. And as the sun comes up, there they are, silhouetted up against that morning sky. And in verse 14, David called out to the army, to Abner. Again, Abner was Saul's chief bodyguard. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? And David taunts him a little bit. says, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? In other words, you're supposed to be the big, tough bodyguard. But why didn't you guard your Lord, the king? In other words, Abner, you call yourself a man, but you're a poor excuse for a bodyguard. Someone came to destroy your Lord, the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you and where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head and... And Abner looks down there, and the spear is gone. The water jug is gone. Abner looks back up to David on the hill, and there's David waving the spear and the water jug. And David just simply says, send one of your young men up to get them. And David and Abishai melt into the rocky crags of the wilderness. A period of time goes by, and I'm just covering the high points. 
Eventually, King Saul and his son Jonathan, they're killed by the Philistines in battle. And the interesting thing is that the Bible tells us that instead of throwing a party, David mourns the death of King Saul. Well, at this time, one of the tribes of Israel, remember Israel had 12 of them, but the tribe of Judah, which was David's tribe, declares David to be their king. But before the other 11 tribes could follow suit, one of King Saul's other sons named Ishbosheth, glad nobody's named that here. Can you imagine Brother Ishbosheth? He declares himself to be king over the 11 tribes. And timeline, remember? For the next seven years, David is king over one tribe. Ishbosheth is king over the other 11. And some people keep saying, you know what, David, you know what? Claim what's yours. The entire kingdom is rightfully yours. Stand up for your rights. And, but over and over, David showed his true character. He says, no, God's will, God's way in God's time. So timeline. You have 18 months or so after David was anointed where he continued to tend sheep. You have him doing odd jobs in the palace for Saul for about seven years. And then he's on the run in the wilderness for eight years. And then another seven years of being king for only one out of 12 tribes. So around, if you do the math, 23 years have gone by after David as a middle school boy was anointed king. One day, two men their brothers, they sneak into Ishbosheth's house. He's taken a nap. They kill him. And they think they've done a great thing for David because now they believe that they've removed the last obstacle for David to be king over the entire nation of Israel. And they cut off Ishbosheth's head, take it to David to give him the good news. Here's what the Bible says. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 8. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Um, kind of off topic. Have you ever wondered why? In the Bible, they would bring severed heads to show people. Kind, kind of gruesome, isn't it? Well, i got, got something I want to show you here. Here's one of the reasons they did that. Because they didn't have iPhones back then. I, I, I'm serious. They didn't have smartphones. And, and um, nobody had a camera to document their death. And so rather than lug the entire body to prove that so-and-so was dead, they'd just cut off the head. And say, hey, here's proof that so-and-so's dead. Um, now you know the rest of the story. I, I read a rhyme about this so you can remember it. The only way to prove that someone was dead was to show up somewhere with their head. I know that's really bad, sorry. Um, but anyway, they present the head to David. They're so excited. David answered, verse 11, When wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house on his own bed? Should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? Because in David's mind, it was character first, integrity first. And 
And he said to these men who had killed Ishbosheth, you did not show character. Nothing you did showed integrity. Finally. Say finally. One, two, three. Finally. After 23 years of waiting, finally it was God's time. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Finally, David became king over all of Israel. And, and so we circle back to my opening statement. That's been a long time ago. Here was this statement. How a person responds when it dawns on them that they are the one with the most influence, the way they respond is the best reflection of their character. Well, during this moment when all of the elders of all the 12 tribes of Israel crowned David king, here we find out David's true greatness. Because right now, David will not only be the most powerful person in the room or the cave, he will be the most powerful person in the country. His word will be law. He will not be questioned. And to help us see David's heart, this is so awesome, the Bible gives us this little obscure statement that most of us have never noticed. But I want to point it out to you in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them. Now that word compact, that just means agreement, and actually it's probably a little stronger than agreement. It'd be more like a covenant. Made a compact, a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anoint David king over Israel. Now, Understand that David did not have to make this compact, especially knowing that he's facing a group of elders who did not support him when he was on the run. They were against him. So you and I would have probably said to these leaders, okay, guys, I'm here not because of you, but in spite of you. I had to be on the run in the wild, run in the wild wilderness, scrounging up food, sleeping on the ground, watching out for snakes and scorpions. And during that whole time, you did not support me. You did not stand up for me. So David could have said, as we would have said, I'm going to give you a little of your own medicine. Turn about his fair play. That's what we would have done. But David, and this is so powerful, he made a covenant with these people before the Lord. And in so doing, he was letting it be known that he would be a king with integrity. He would be a king under authority. In this moment, he was submitting himself not only to the people, but to God. And he was saying, okay, God, you're making me king, but I am not the king. God will be the king. I will rule under you with integrity. And, and here's the point. And, and this is so amazing. David waited over 20 years to become king after he had been anointed king. But during those years, he learned that kings with integrity don't use their influence for themselves. He learned that they use their influence to serve and to make a difference in the lives of others. And can I give, give you something that I think is so cool? And this almost brings chills. This is awesome. 
a thousand years later from this incident that I'm telling about. A thousand years later. 20 miles north of this very spot in Hebron where, where David made this covenant with the elders. Jesus would also make another covenant. John, who gives us some of the greatest literature about Jesus, wrote how Jesus in the hours right before he would be arrested modeled what David had modeled about a thousand years earlier. And I love the similarities here. Like David, Jesus had been anointed to be the king, but he was not recognized. Like David, Jesus would initiate a new covenant, not with the 12 tribes of Israel, rather between God and all of mankind. And like David, Jesus had the power without the crown. He had the authority without the title. And remember our question? What do you do? What what do you do when you're the most influential person in the room? What do you do? John says that Jesus got up from the last Passover that he would ever partake of. And he grabbed a towel. And he headed for a basin of water. And the disciples, they couldn't believe it. In fact, Peter says, no, 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 master. No, we've got servants for that. That's beneath you. No, you're not about to wash our feet. You're a rabbi. But the Bible tells us that Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel. And here's what I believe Jesus was saying. In those moments when you think you're something, in those moments when you become the boss, in that moment when you are the most looked up to person in the room, I believe Jesus was saying, in that moment, you need to look for some feet to wash. And of course, today that doesn't necessarily play out literally, but integrity always causes us to have a heart of service. Because again, I believe the greatest reflection of our character is what you do, what we do when it dawns on us that we have the most power or influence in the room or in the relationship. And and we would do well to embrace the greatness that David and Jesus modeled for us. And that we would not use that power and influence for revenge or for personal gain. Rather, we would look for some feet to wash we would look for some ways to serve because after all, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And, and who are we to think that we're any better than Jesus? So how does this play out for us this week? Well, it should mean that in those moments when we do have the influence and we do have the authority that we would act with integrity, it it should mean that our character would reflect the character of Jesus Christ. It should also play out by serving one another. It should play out with, that, with those little insignificant acts that maybe nobody sees. Little acts such as maybe even just picking up some trash that you didn't throw down. It should play out by looking for ways to encourage and tangibly love people who maybe weren't very nice to you maybe don't deserve your love. David, Jesus, show us that integrity serves, it loves, it gives the benefit of the doubt, leaves revenge in the hands of Almighty God. And that is so freeing, know that we don't have to come up with a way to tell them off because Jesus will take care of them in His own time. 
So this week, the measure of who you really are, the measure of your integrity, the measure of your character will be on display when you are the person in the room with the most authority. Let's not blow that opportunity to show Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that today um, our, our culture celebrates when we actually kind of let somebody have it and, you know, stand up for your rights. And, you know, there is a time we, we have to stand up. But, Father, sometimes I believe our motives are impure. Sometimes it's more revenge. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us as people that call ourselves Christians that in those moments whenever we find ourselves with the most influence, the most power, the most authority, whether it's in a room, whether it's in an auditorium, whether it's in a classroom, or whether it's alone with a phone where our influences can tell our phone what to look at. Father, I pray that we would see integrity, full integrity, full character. God, I pray that the church would be the church. And God, that old song, without spot or wrinkle, I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't be hypocrisy, that, God, we would find ourselves even in situations like David where it had been so easy to just take revenge and what would logically be right. But, Father, it's not the way of, of the cross. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us in the coming days that, we would be people of integrity. I pray that this week there would be some tangible ways that we could show our integrity and, and, and begin sh serving people that maybe don't deserve kind actions. But then again, Lord, we didn't deserve your mercy. We didn't deserve your grace. And so, God, I pray that this week we would make a difference in some people's lives. God, forgive us for those times that we've taken matters into our own hands and we've said, turn about is fair play. Let's give them a little of their own medicine. And those times when I believe you in heaven, you were saying, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. That's not the way of the cross. Lord, help us to be people that love you and love each other, that follow you. Make us people of integrity. This week, Lord, let us see that happen. I pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.